Hi, this is Ian Harvey, Tokyo U.S. Brand Manager. I'm back for part two of the interview with Andy Newell, who's extremely successful and accomplished World Cup and Olympic and World Championship skier, who's also now a coach of the BSF Pro Team and runs Nordic Team Solutions. If you haven't seen part one, I would encourage watching part one before this second part. So Andy, thanks for joining me again for this session. It's awesome to have you back. Thanks, Ian. I want to dive right into it because I know we're a little short on time. Yeah. Um, I wanted to, you, you're built slender, kind of the classic cross-country ski. You have the classic cross-country ski build. However, as you pointed out in the first session, this is now, a, let's say, a power endurance sport. And a lot of cross-country skiers, especially the sprinters, resemble linebackers, very fit linebackers as compared to what one traditionally associates with a endurance athlete build. Um, I know despite your relatively slender build, you've been one of the strongest guys in the circuit, on the international circuit for a long time. And it seems to me that strength training is probably the aspect of ski training that has changed the most over the last 20 years. That's my opinion anyway. I would love to hear your comments on that and on uh, how you do recommend doing strength training. Yeah, um, let's see. Well, I guess when we're talking body types, one thing that is cool about skiing is that you see a lot of different body types out there. And I, for sure, historically have been one of the smaller guys on the sprint start line of a World Cup. I might be stacked, you know, next to, you know, I'm thinking of, I don't know, even Nortug is like, you know, 6'1 or something. He's a pretty big guy. Um, and uh, a lot of the guys that I used to race against on a regular basis typically were quite a bit bigger than me. But then you also have smaller guys like Pellegrino is pretty small. Um, he's actually about my size and weight. Um, Emil Janssen, who was a World Cup globe, sprint globe winner for several years, is a pretty small guy too. So I think it's cool that you see different body types in, in a sport like crossing your skiing. And it's, it's more about a difference. It's more about the balance between like the, the weight power ratio than it is about pure brute force, which I think is kind of cool. Um, and you'll notice that in skiing, like different athletes tend to do well on certain snow conditions kind of days. So I was an athlete, I think because I was a little bit lighter and smaller when there was, I loved it when you'd show up on race day and it would be like some kind of crazy, weird, slushy condition, you know, or some, the big guys tend to struggle in some of those really deep, you know, sugary city sprints or something, or like if it gets kind of slow and slushy. Um, so yeah, you just have to play to your advantage, I think, depending on your body type for the sport. Yeah. Before we get into strength, I just want to make a quick observation. Most people think of uh, Norwegians as being kind of the, the ideal cross-country skiers and build and, you know, all their attributes. And uh, it's interesting to note on the World Cup circuit last year, they had the largest sprinter, but also I would say the shortest sprinter, and they were both very successful. Uh, just, you know, very short and very, Tabu, for example, is a very short sprinter. Mm -hmm. Yep. And, uh, and a Swede like Teodor Pedersen, or I think his name is Aune, uh, a huge Norwegian guy, yep. um, as well as the Swede Teodor Pedersen. So that's an interesting observation to go along with what you just said, huh? Yeah, you definitely gotta play to your strengths. Like those bigger guys, especially on classic days, like classic skiing days, those dudes that are like six, four have a lot of leverage on their poles and they'll tend to do pretty well um, when it's firm, hard pulling conditions. But when it gets softer, you know, they have more, you know, more equipment and more, you know, body weight to move around. So it becomes a lot harder on them. So. Like Eric Vaughn was another example of a giant Nor yeah. on the Norwegian team, but then you get Todd who's 
I don't know, a foot and a half shorter. It's, yeah. it's remarkable. But they're both been very successful. Togwell, I think, was third twice last year. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's talk about strength training. Um, despite being slender, I've seen, I've seen you do some pretty impressive things in the weight room and obviously even more impressive on skis. Can you talk about just maybe put some specifics in there, but a, a framework for strength for, let's say, I know there are different phases throughout the year, but let's say a fall training phase or however you want to do it. Let's, yeah. I don't want to qualify. Um, well, I think it's interesting to think about how, um, how we as a country got to where we are now, which is I think we are one of the leaders actually in strength and conditioning for skiing. Um, and I've worked really closely with Tashana, um, Tashana Schriller, who's the U S ski and snowboard strength coach for Nordic right now. She's been with our team for, I don't know, maybe at least five or six years. Um, and she's awesome. I've learned a, a ton from her and I take a lot of the principles that I've learned from Tashana and incorporate them into the strength plans that I write now with Nordic team solutions. So I write a lot of strength plans for colleges, um, you know, ski schools, individuals um and i get really into strength and conditioning now for whatever reason i think it's really fun and fascinating to play around with the different phases of strength training and come up with new exercises to do and i don't know i think it's really fun so i could talk about strength training all day long that's why i'm um, trying to qualify it because i'm afraid it's going to turn into 45 minutes on strength which is great but i'd want to do a third session <laughs> yeah um but when i so my best the, the the single piece of advice I like to give anyone who's interested in strength and conditioning um, for skiing is kind of like the biggest mistake skiers make is they do the same type of strength training for more than five or six weeks at a time. That's kind of your biggest mistake you see athletes make is that they, they stick to what they're comfortable with in the gym and stick to what they're um, used to in the gym. And so for some athletes that might mean like, I think a lot of skiing athletes do too much of the same exercises in the gym. So they're doing too much, too many body weight pull-ups, too much body weight dips. They tend to just have certain exercises that they gravitate towards and use them throughout the entire year too many times. And so what you're going to see is your body's going to reach a plateau. You might get really good at doing a certain exercise, but you're going to plateau and you're not going to continue to increase your strength and power that way. Um, and so I encourage people to constantly be mixing up their reps and mixing up the exercises that they're doing and make sure when they go into the gym, they have a certain focus, um, which is why we periodize strength training the way we do. Um, you mentioned the general periodization. You got to work on general strength. You got to work on max strength if it's age appropriate uh, for you as an athlete. You got to work on power and you have to make sure you turn that power into velocity. Even if you are an athlete that only races marathons, say you race the Berkey, that's the only thing you do. It's a three hour race for you. You still need to work on velocity. It's an important piece of strength training because you're, you're basically, you're essentially teaching your body how to move. Um, you build strength and you have to turn it into applicable strength that you can actually move well and teach your body to move well and quickly. Um, and even if you're racing three hour events, you still need to move quickly and move well. And that's where that last piece of velocity strength comes in. So um, let's see, it's, we're coming into October here soon. Typically, October is a big max strength month for cross-country skiers. And what max strength means is really low reps. So we're going to do um, more Olympic-style lifting reps of four or less usually, really high weight, <clears throat> doing those exercises basically to exhaustion where you can't you know, move the weight anymore. So we'll do things like bench press, deadlift, 
weighted pull up, maybe weighted dips, um, all kinds of that kind of stuff. And that, that's when it comes to general max strength lifts. And then um, the other part of strength plans that I really get into nowadays are a lot of the band work. So we mentioned how glute and hamstring strength and hip strength are hugely important now in skiing. Um, we do a ton of band work, um, like different exercises, working on running mechanics with bands while you're in the gym or just, you know, um, really finding ways to strengthen the glute muscles, engage the glute muscles, and then turn that into powerful movement in the gym. So yeah, people should check out Nora team solution strength, uh, routines. I absolutely, I was going to just say that because this is a, it's a critical aspect of preparing for Nordic skiing, racing, and there's a whole lot to it. And the reality is uh, an hour long podcast isn't nearly enough. And I wouldn't try to uh, masquerade uh, this, have this session masquerade as information on strength where you could go and watch a bunch of videos and uh, on each subject, on each periodization on, like, for example, what are some things you can do to change your strength training? You can change the speed of movement. You can change the reps. You can change the weight. You can change the angle at which you're working the muscle. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the exercise, you can make it a, a simplistic movement using one joint, or you can make it a complex movement using multiple joints mm -hmm. and muscles. So there's a whole lot of different things you can do, which change, uh, which stimulate this, um, confuse confusion for the body when you confuse the body by changing things up it creates adaptation and stimulus right that's what you're that's what you're trying to accomplish in part when you're when you're changing the stimulus in your training right mm -hmm. yeah exactly so those are some of the factors you can change but all of that each one of those is 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 a podcast in itself really so i would recommend that people just go to nordic team solutions and and check it out for themselves because this is a critical aspect of training that we cannot cover adequately in a, in a simple podcast interview. It's kind of interesting. I mentioned the history of strength training in the US. Um, a lot of people don't know this. So we as a country obviously have a much smaller budget than other countries when it comes to our US ski team, our Nordic side. And when I was first on the, on the US ski team in the early 2000s, um, the ski team could not essentially afford a specific like Nordic strength coach and because of that we used an alpine strength coach and the alpine strength coach actually came from a football background this guy's name was our first strength coach was a guy named zach weatherford who's awesome and he um he was one of the first because we were working with them we were one of the first nordic countries uh, nordic national teams that started working with a strength and conditioning coach that had absolutely that was completely removed from nordic skiing he didn't even really know what nordic skiing was and because of that, we started doing more Olympic style lifts and more power based lifts um, because he was used to working with those Alpine skiers. So it's kind of funny what was essentially like a shortcoming of our team that we didn't have a Nordic strength coach actually ended up helping the U.S. in the long run. Um, because now a lot of these countries train like more traditional, um, you know, explosive style weight training. Um, and the U.S. was actually one of the first countries to start doing that, um, which is kind of interesting. So we've we've kind of been on the forefront of strength and conditioning training, I think, for skiing um, in the last decade, which is kind of fun. Okay. So let me transition to it. Let, let's stay with strength, but transition to specific strength. So weight room, we've, we've, we've kind of touched on that. that. Let's say in the spring, summer, you're maybe going three to even four times a week in the weight room. Is that pretty accurate? Yeah, um, mostly... Yeah, at the very least, two times a week in the weight in the weight room for sure. 
um, if not a third average. session that focuses on hip strength or something. Yeah, yeah. So spring and summer, you're probably averaging three. Yeah. And then in the fall, you're doing one or two max strength workouts probably in the weight room and then supplementing it maybe with band work and core. Is that a, route, a ballpark? Yeah, I think you're, you're right there. I, uh, the athletes that I coach in, in during my – when I was um, – preparing for the season as well. I would almost always go to the gym twice a week, even in October and November and December and in January, um, almost every, almost throughout the entire season. You definitely switch your focus there um, at some points, but yeah, um, the, the general progression as I get closer to a season is max strength in October, and then I transition into power strength in November, and then into velocity and maintenance strength uh, in December and then into January. Please comment on the difference between max power and velocity strength. Yeah, so um, basically the biggest max would be, um, like I mentioned, low reps, high weight. Um, and typically when we're doing a max strength phase, we're cycling through each one of the exercises in full. So say I'm going to do a bench press. I'll do four, rep, four sets of four on the bench, um, as heavy as I can go. And then I'll go to deadlift and do like four sets of four on deadlift and then continue on. Um, same with back squat, things like that. Um, power is different than max because a good indication of a power phase is if you're doing some contrast sets. So that means weighting something and then going directly into something that's unweighted. We call this a superset um, in strength and conditioning or a contrast set. So like doing weighted pull-ups, for example, and then you lose the weight and you do a really fast body weight pull-up. That's a perfect way to train power. That's like the simplest way to train power. And then lastly, velocity is like mostly body weight stuff where you're doing a lot more plyometrics, a lot more ski specific plyometrics. So like, you know, diagonal skate bounds or, or, you know, jumps that are very specific to your sport. That's more velocity based training. And so you can see how that progresses as you get closer to the season. Okay. So you're doing that generally speaking twice a week mm -hmm. uh, in the fall and winter, even yeah. although in the, they're very targeted, it might not be super, long workouts, they're not be super hard workouts, but they're, they're bringing a sharpness and an, a bringing an ability that you wouldn't have if you didn't do those workouts. Yeah, exactly. Yep, we're still doing it twice a week in the winter. And yeah, the duration's a little bit shorter, but um, yeah, in January, you obviously don't wanna make yourself super sore for um, a big event, especially if it's a World Cup or something. But typically as a World Cup skier, we would hit the gym pretty hard, even through November and December and into January because um, it helps you maintain that strength throughout the entire season, especially being a smaller guy like me. I used to have to really work to, you know, focus on maintaining muscle mass and weight throughout the season. So you're not losing strength. Right. Yeah. So here's my question then having had said that all this weight room work that much of it is specific, but a lot of this weight room work, what about strength outside the weight room on either on a ski erg or on skis itself, roller skis or snow skis? Yeah. Um, so our goal with any of this strain, tra strength training, obviously, anything we do in the weight room, we want to see translate into speed on snow. That's the ultimate goal. If you're not seeing a direct translation from or direct improvement in your strength on snow, you need to change what you're doing in the gym because you're probably not doing something right. Um, and kind of as we've become more dynamic in our skiing, um, it's become hugely important to be strong throughout the core. And, and this is what we call the entire core. So I usually ask people like, 
I'll ask kids this all the time. I'll say, you know, we all know you need to have a strong core in scheme, but what's your core? And nine times out of 10, the kids are like, oh yeah, your core, you know, your, your like abs and stuff. That's a typical answer for a kid. And I always have to stop them right there and say, no, your core is not your abs and stuff. It's much more involved than that. Your core is actually from your knees all the way up to your shoulders. That's what I refer to as your core. And so your glute muscles are part of your core. Your hip muscles are part of your core. Um, there's a lot of strength and conditioning coaches that actually think like a front squat, for example, is one of the best core exercises you could possibly do. And a lot of people don't realize that. Um, so I think there have been a lot of ski teams out there that have law, like over the years tend to gravitate more towards like too much traditional, what I call floor core. So that means like laying out some mats and doing like a bunch of crunches and dead bugs and, you know, doing like 10 or 15 minutes of just pure ab exercises. And I think they're missing out on their entire core and working like knees all the way up to shoulders kind of core. And that's where you generate that power. That's where you can, if you're able to maintain good body position on your skis, if you have that kind of strong core. So that resonates with me because I've got a, a strong core in quotes. In other words, I have break really strong stomach muscles, but I have very weak and very instable hips. Exactly. And hip instability means you're not strong, mm -hmm. period, you know? Yep. And a lot of that becomes, I'm 52 and I've been sitting in, in a chair a lot of the time, you know? And so my, my, you know, stomach muscles, they can only be so effective when you have unstable hips and weak hips. Yeah, that's exactly. You nailed it. And that's, yeah, when you're, you know, pumping 15 millimoles of lactic acid and your heart's beating super fast and your technique starts to deteriorate during a race, you can have the strongest abs in the world, but if you don't have strong glutes and hips and other things to maintain a good body position, you're not going to be able to utilize that strength. And so that's why like positioning becomes so much more important. And that's why our core strength, if you look at the core strength exercises that I prescribe athletes, it's really changed over the years away from that floor core where I'm, where people are doing like, you know, crunches and sit-ups and, you know, that more traditional style core exercises to now we're doing a lot of like positioning stuff where you're doing a lot of movement. So uh, a lot of core exercises where you're using your abs, but you're also trying to engage your glute muscles and hip muscles all at the same time. So you're trying to really use that whole core and not just like crank on your, on your torso, your abs all the time. Um, so that's kind of where we've transitioned into more of that tile, that like more complicated core strength basically over the to years. Use out, to use an outdated term that I think a lot of people are familiar with, this would translate into functional strength for cross-country skiing as compared to muscle you know strength functional yep. strength where you're stabilizing where your body has to stabilize and work and, and such so yeah this is this is this is what i meant by how much strength has changed over the last 20 years because it seems like this is more important than what people generally considered strength in the past yeah absolutely yeah, I, totally so so i want to go back to my question though so let's let's say we're taught we've we're doing all the non on ski strength work we're doing our quote-unquote core work we're doing the weight room work what about dull pulling skating without poles skiing without pole um classic skiing without poles um single sticking um maybe speech which i think are, is a combination of can be technique but it's certainly neuromuscular strength and power uh for crossing or skiing it's a strength workout as far as i'm concerned also what about all these types of things? How would you incorporate that? And how do you estimate that in their importance? Yeah, I think for any athlete who's training 
full time for skiing, they should incorporate at least one double pole specific workout into their routine a week, um, at least one, if not two. And so that means going out on your roller skis and just using your upper body. You just want a double pole. And I think it's good to do one distance style double pull a week. So that means, you know, if you're a younger athlete, maybe an hour and a half to two hours of just double pulling. Um, if you're an older athlete, you could go as far as, you know, three to four hours of just double pulling, like a longer distance double pull workout. And then it also makes sense um, to do a specific strength workout um, for your upper body once every two weeks. And so that means doing, like you mentioned, single sticking or doing some hill repeats. So that's where I might um, bring the team to like a gradual uphill section. We might do five repeats, five by five minute repeats going up this hill, just using our upper body, um, double pulling. And then we might do five single sticking, that kind of stuff. And that's, that's really <clears throat> kind of like old school training, but some of the best ways to train that specific strength that's referred to as that double pull strength. Um, we're starting to play around nowadays with a lot more, um, a lot, I guess, more like contrast style training during specific strength. So um, we use parachutes now and we use pull sleds, like uh, dragging tires and stuff. Um, yep, yeah, bungee cords, exactly. Yeah, a lot of teams can do that um, where you might have one athlete like hold back another athlete with a bungee cord, yeah. And that's a really good way to train power specific strength. So um, like while going for a long, easy double pull for three hours on flat terrain might train like endurance specific strength. If you want to train power specific strength, then you got to weight it somehow. And so that's where using a pull sled is really helpful or having a bungee cord where you like pull your teammate back um, and do that kind of stuff. And then kind of the last piece of that is building speed specific strength. And so that's exactly like you mentioned, doing a lot of speed repetitions where you're just double pulling. Um, we actually do speed repetitions where you're just using our lower body too, where you're just skating without poles. All these can be done classic skiing and skate skiing. And so, um, yeah, those are great ways to train that pure velocity where you um, kind of weight something and then take away the weight and do it very, very quickly. And we do that on roller skis with double pull as well, where you might, do like a sled pull uphill double point and then lose the weight and then do a speed downhill um, so that you're trying to move even faster after having loaded up the muscles. It's all about muscle recruitment. That's why you load an exercise and then take the load away is because when you load something and weight something, your body is forced to recruit more muscles. So if I'm pulling with a sled behind me, I'm recruiting more of my chest muscles, my back muscles, my traps, my lats, all kinds of things. So I'm actually recruiting a greater number of muscle fibers and then you, then you remove the weight and you're able to then execute that exercise at a faster velocity. That's how you, that's how you get faster. It's that simple. Right. <laughs> and, and, and these techniques that we're talking about in the past, it used to be called specific strength, but now hopefully pretty much all the strength we're doing is specific strength and this, you know, the stabilization, the, the complex exercises. Um, so let me, let me say on ski strength, yeah. It seems to me that there's been something that's been a constant problem over the years. And that is when people go to the weight room, in very many cases, of course, this is old school strength. Like they're going there and doing bicep curls, bench presses, pull-ups, dips, some core exercise. And it's the non-functional type strength that we've been talking about. And then they go out on skis and they're not using any of the strength that they just developed. Either, either their technique is different than what they were training 
um, let's say someone doesn't engage their core or engage their glutes, and they've been doing uh, functional strength training for their for their core or um, or some kind of squats or something that uses their glutes, but they're not using it when they ski. That seems to be a dysfunction there uh, right. and a problem. And it seems to me that um, doing these types of specific skiing strength exercises on roller skis and skis under the careful eye of a coach would reinforce the proper movements and make sure that the, those hard-earned strength gains are being taken advantage of on skis. Would you yeah. say that's an important point or can you comment on that, please? Yeah, no, I think you're right. And I think a common mistake that Nordic athletes make is um, that they don't incorporate all the, you know, four or five phases of strength training within their routine. So we're talking general strength, power, general strength, max strength, power strength, and velocity strength. We can keep it that simple, those four phases. And so a lot of athletes think, um, you know, they might think, okay, I'm, I have a lot of general strength. Like I'm strong enough. I don't need to go to the gym. I'm strong. And they're missing out on the general strength and the power strength. And you might have some athletes that are like, okay, um, you know, I don't want to put on muscles. I don't want to put on muscle weight. So I'm going to skip a general strength phase and in a, in a, I'm going to skip a max strength phase. But I think these athletes are mistaken because you can build strength in the gym and not put on a single pound of muscle weight if you, if it's done correctly. And so I think that's a misconception is that if you do a lot of heavy lifting in the gym, you're going to put on muscle weight. It doesn't need to be like that. That's not the case. Um, and so I think because of that, people skip strength phases. Sometimes um, you might have an athlete that wants to put on a lot of, maybe they feel like they're weak and therefore they don't want to spend four weeks doing a velocity phase where you're just doing a bunch of body weight stuff and learning how to move quickly because they want to focus on building strength. And so I, basically the point I'm trying to make is if you skip certain phases of strength, you kind of, you miss a link uh, in the chain between turning that general strength into ski specific strength on snow, how to move fast. Um, and so, yeah, I guess my advice is don't skip strength phases. Any, everyone can benefit from moving well on their feet in a velocity phase and everyone can benefit from working on building strength, which can be done without actually putting on muscle mass if it's done correctly. Super. Um, I guess we've been talking a little bit about stability. There's one other thing that, uh, that has come to my mind, and that is working, for example, with my daughter, but some other people, you'll see them hiking, running, as well as classic skiing and skating and so on. And I'll see them with bad posture. Like, it's not necessarily the stability or the strength that is missing it's the actual body awareness of not moving in a, in a fashion that I would call athletic or aligned. You know what I mean by that? Mm -hmm. And I can say to my daughter, Hey, look at your knees, look at your feet, look at your hips, look at your posture. And then she'll correct herself. And then she'll be moving in a way that looks more athletic. Her knees aren't going in or her hips aren't moving around and, and unstable. Her glutes are engaged. She's standing up taller instead of, and, and so there's a, I think there's an important aspect of this, which is, Stability is also an awareness of mm -hmm. what it means to move in, in a stable fashion. Would you agree with that? Yeah, definitely. That's that proprioception piece. So that's like the body awareness piece that athletes have. And you'll notice that some young athletes are really good at moving. Like it's almost like they're watching themselves on a, on a TV screen, right? They, they ski and they know exactly what they look like. 
without having to actually watch themselves do it. And some athletes struggle with that. Some athletes think like in their mind, they might see like the most perfect skating technique or striding technique, but that's not what they're doing. It actually looks slightly different. So an athlete's proprioception, their ability to move in a way that's realistic, like their vision of what they're doing in their mind is realistic to what is actually happening on snow is this is a skill that some athletes have and some don't. It doesn't mean that athletes that have um, kind of lower levels of proprioception can't learn proper technique. It just means you have to, um, yeah, find different ways to describe it to them. Obviously shooting video is hugely helpful. Nowadays with technology, you can like shoot video on an iPhone and like, you know, airdrop it and send it to an athlete within seconds and they can watch it. So yeah, I think it's a matter of using those technologies and some athletes will definitely benefit more from having constant video of themselves, like, you know, several times a week watching little clips of themselves skiing um, so they can make those kinds of small adjustments to their, their body position. When we started coaching Pearl, she had basically, she had one video session in her entire life. Yeah. And, and her technique in that body awareness was terrible. And we videoed her, I guess on average five days a week all summer. And her technique and awareness of her technique changed so tremendously. And another thing that's been helpful for her, it, when running, she goes a little knock-kneed and collapses her ankle joints and turns her feet out. You know, like a lot of, um, let's say a lot of women do it because their hips to knees, that angle's a little different from men. But she started doing running on a treadmill in front of a mirror. And I made mm -hmm. her aware of what to look for, what to avoid and what to look for. And her running technique is, and her awareness has changed tremendously because of that. And I think that's yeah. something that is helpful to a lot of people too. Just that awareness. Yeah, totally. And that's why you see a lot of, a lot of World Cup athletes do sessions on treadmills, not because it's better to ski on a treadmill necessarily, but, but, but because you have, you'll put a camera in front of you and a camera on the side, and you get constant feedback. Like you'll see World Cup athletes, Sumbi, Martin Sumbi's known, known for doing this all the time. He does probably one workout on a treadmill a week because he really wants to dial in that technique or he has, he has like screens in front of him and he knows if he changes this little angle on his elbow, it, it, he can see the change right away and he can try to feel the change and like see how that might affect his technique. Um, so that's kind of like the more advanced kind of way. Back in the day, the Russians used to just take these huge mirrors, like full body length mirrors and, you know, tape them to the back of a car and the coach would drive in front of them. That's how they would do it. That's cool. Yeah. Let's okay. plug it in my computer. Okay. So I want to, um, Totally shift gears now. Yeah. I've got a lot of other stuff I want to talk about and I uh, need to t keep an eye on the clock. So um, here's just a, a basic question. You've been coaching Nordic Team Solutions for two years plus in addition to running summer camps and now uh, and also coaching at U.S. Team Camps. And now you're coaching BSF Pro Team. I think you're as well set up for coaching with your incredible experience and knowledge and analytical mind that anyone who's ever started coaching. Um, having had said that, is there an aspect of coaching that has surprised you that you, you felt like you needed to develop all of a sudden that surprised you? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, <laughs> there's a, 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 a coaching mentor of mine once said, the hardest thing about being a coach is having to listen to their crappy music in the van. That's what he said. No, <laughs> but <laughs> there's some truth to that. Um, <laughs> Yeah, you got a lot of you got a lot of bad band music. Um, that's been tough. Um, no, but seriously, I think patience is a huge um, piece of coaching that is often overlooked. And I am admittedly not a super patient. Like, I don't think I was a patient athlete necessarily. 
patience is always like something that I've struggled with because I'm kind of always going, going, going. Um, so just having patience and learning how to communicate differently with different athletes is something I think I'm always going to try to work on. That's something I've tried to evolve and work on in the last couple of years. Um, and so I've tried to kind of rely on some coaching mentors, whether it's Ferry or Grover or um, like Rick Capala is a, another great coaching me- mentor. That guy's amazing. He's been, he's been in the game so long and uh, I've, I can remember, um, I don't know, a couple, maybe two summers ago, I was coaching with Rick Capala at the national U16 camp in outside of Lake Placid in, in classic fashion, you know, these U16 boys are just acting like boneheads. They go out and like take a croquet set from the training center that we're staying at and just act like idiots and like break the croquet mallets on one another and like lose some of the balls. And then just like leave it in a pile in the corner. And obviously that's not going to go over well with the training center. And so Rick and I, we sit the boys down and it was just so cool to see Rick's interaction with those boys during that time. He's like, um, you know, guys, I know you're not perfectly formed human beings yet. Like everyone makes mistakes. Um, it was just so cool to see Rick turn what would have been like a really could have been a total like crackdown moment as a coach to be like, you guys messed up. Like, what the hell were you thinking to see him turn that into like more of a learning moment for those kids. And like every single person I saw after Rick talked to the group, like every single person walked out of that room, like understanding what had gone wrong. Like they understood that, okay, if you act like an idiot, it reflects on the coach in this way. And then we can't come back here and do another training camp and like kind of the ripple effect of their actions. And I wish I would have recorded that conversation to just see Rick um, kind of break that down and, and have that be a, such a great teaching moment. So yeah, just finding ways to um, understand that there's no perfect humans out there. I wasn't a perfect uh, athlete at 21 years old. That's for sure. I probably would have been a, a pain to coach as well. So I think just understanding that and finding that level of patience and understanding that um, trying to find learning opportunities for athletes, I think is something I'm trying to work on. Cool. Yeah. Uh, That's a great, great anecdote too. Uh, Okay. Um, What is something you know now that you wish you had really known when you were an upstart, super talented 18 year old? Um, I wish I would have known then, um, what I am hoping that this generation knows. And that is that you can go and win any race you want to win. And that's something I didn't, I don't think I knew that as a 18 year old kid. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons why I'm so passionate now about coaching is because I, I think as an 18 year old, 19 year old, I had kind of all the talent I needed in order to, to be the most successful skier in the world. But I never got, I never reached my potential. I don't think because I didn't, I didn't know I could do it. I didn't have that winning mentality that we now have in the U S. And so I think I would have gone back to my 18 year old self and been like, you can win a medal at you. I would have told my 18 year old self, like you're going to be at the Olympics two years from now and you could win this event. I didn't believe it. When I was at my first Olympics, I probably had realistically, I qualified second in my first Olympics in the qualification in the sprint and ended up like 14th, but I was on the podium a week after that in 06 as a 22 year old kid. So I wish I would have known you can, you shouldn't go into your first Olympic just like 
blind is like, like it's going to be a fun experience. You, you should go in there knowing that you could have won. And I think I would have told my 18 year old self that because in reality, I, I don't think we had that winning mentality in the U S like we do now. And it would have been, um, yeah, I think it, who knows what would have happened, but I, I think it would have been nice to hear that. <laughs> cool. Yeah. Great. Um, World Cup seasons can be very long and <clears throat> pretty much all the races are in another continent, you know, not North America. And you're, you know, I remember waking up one time and walking into a wall trying to go to the bathroom at night and I forgot what country I was, you know, and, and in Germany, the bathroom was down the hall on the right and in my hotel room and, and in Italy, it was on the left, you know, or whatever, you know, and I, it gets kind of old if you let it. Mm-hmm. But, um, and, you know, there's a saying in the U.S. Keaton, you're good for about three weeks. And that's when you hit your peak about three weeks after you, you start World Cups. And then w- inevitably, for whatever reason, r- results for many people seem to decline just because they get tired and homesick and so on. Mm-hmm. So you've been very successful for entire seasons. I'd love to, despite continually traveling and racing, I'd love to know your strategies regarding that. That's interesting. Yeah, I mean, if we go back to some of my earlier years on the World Cup, I was one of the first U.S. athletes to actually go and race an entire World Cup season because you might remember if we go back to the early 2000s, um, we had a pretty small national team. We had like six people on the national team and we didn't have enough money actually to race an entire World Cup season. So when I started racing my first World Cups, we had to kind of choose we would actually stay domestic. We would race through like West Yellowstone and U S nationals. And then we would hop over to Europe and race a series of races. Like it might, we might do two months on the road or one month on the road um, at a time. And that's because we didn't have the money. We didn't have the budget to pay to be on the world cup for so long. But what happened was I cracked into the red group where for those who don't know that, that means if you're ranked among like the top 20, for example, on the world cup, this will pay your hotel bills. Basically they pay back the U S ski team to have you on the world cup. That's what the red group is called. And so once we started cracking into the red group like that, as young athletes, then it allowed us to do a full season on the world cup. And so that's when I started traveling to Europe, for example, we would actually go in October. You, I'm sure you remember the Dusseldorf days, right? Oh, yeah. The Dusseldorf sprint would happen. That was such a fun race. And so that race was actually like Halloween weekend. We'd be racing end of October in Europe. And so I had some years where I would go over race Dusseldorf in Germany and then go to Austria to get on snow. And I'd be in Europe from October until, um, you know, the end of March. So we're talking, that's a long season. It's a five month season on the road or something. So, um, yeah, it makes you thankful for your teammates, I guess. <laughs> but, but that's, that's one of the ways we got through it. You've been better at dealing that with that than I think that probably than any of the other U S ski team athletes. You know, some of them, they bring like their house with them, <laughs> yeah. you know, and they've got all this stuff and, and it's kind of to replicate home. Some mm-hmm. like with me, what really helped me was learning German. And then I had all these friends when I was over there and it was, I had balance because I was screwing around with language and had friends and I ended up meeting my wife there. And like, there's a lot of different strategies for dealing with it. Some people go out and party. I mean, there's a lot of different strategies. Have you, I guess, yeah. just being consummate professional and loving the sport so much that maybe you never got so burned out. I mean, I'm just curious because you were more successful with that than pretty much anywhere else, anyone else. Yeah. I think it's a common, I think one, our coaches were, had a huge influence on that. So Matt Whitcomb and Grover, two amazing coaches, Matt, especially is really 
in tune with like team dynamic and team culture. And so I was one of the first U.S. ski team athletes to start spending an entire winter in Europe. But then soon after that, you know, Keegan was joining me and then we had Liz Steven and then, you know, we had uh, Chris Cook was doing big seasons back then, Torin Koos. Um, and then now we have like folks like Jesse and everyone do basically full seasons now in the World Cup as well. And I don't think we would have gotten there so smoothly if it wasn't for people like Matt who helped us work through like, yeah, team dynamic. Um, you know, we have a saying on the team that's like, you don't need to be best friends, but you need to be best teammates. And that means like, you know, understanding all the little nuances that go into living with some, like, not only on the, are you on the road for six months, but you're living in hotel rooms with your teammates, the same people that you're racing against every weekend. So you have to have a pretty unique relationship with your coaches and teammates to not only working with them outside every day on a daily basis on the snow, but also to be sleeping in the same room as them, eating every single meal with them, doing that kind of stuff. And so it really becomes like a family unit. And I think Matt and Chris have been really helpful in, in making sure his athletes understood the importance of that family dynamic and thinking of our teammates, yeah, as almost like family members. Like you, you might have a family member that drives you crazy, but at the end of the day, they're still family. And so you need to come together and work through whatever it is going on. And, and really at the end of the day, you are going to be there for each other. And that's genuinely the way we feel as US ski team members is like, we're, we are honestly there for all our teammates. And so we have, we'd have strategies. Like I remember we, we'd come up with rules. Like you weren't allowed to just to create normalcy on a daily basis. Um, obviously no phones at meals was something we always had as a rule on the ski team. So you had to actually be there and like, be talking with your teammates at meals. Um, it was like no sweatpants at meals either. You kind of had to like dress normally. You know how what it's like to live in a hotel room. Like you actually had to dress up and put on like normal clothes to come to meals. Um, we'd also try to do um, one kind of team activity a week. We would call it Team Tuesday. That's something that Pete Bordenberg actually started, uh, the Team Tuesday. And that meant that one day a week, we tried to do something that was totally removed from ski training as a team. It might be like playing cards, charades, and, you know, maybe it's going for a walk or something, but you got to be friends off of the snow first. And, and that way it will create a much more fun family atmosphere on the road. And yeah, you just get used to it. My, my early days that we didn't have, like, you couldn't even Skype home. There wasn't even a such thing. Like you couldn't have been Zoom calling home. It wasn't impossible. Like you, you made phone calls on landlines every once in a while um, back then. And then now obviously we have a lot of technology now that you can, stay in touch with family members and friends back home too. But it really is that family unit, that team while you're on the road that keeps it, keeps the vibe going for five months at a time. Cool. This is yeah. an aspect of international racing that other countries, except for maybe Canada, haven't had to deal with or, or become developed at. I mean, uh, Europeans all go home between road cup sites for the most part and check in yep. at home a couple of days and then go back and, um, I've noticed when they come to North America and then there's a series like two or three races in a row that is World Cup sites in a row, they get travel fatigue very quickly, I've noticed, which is, it's nice for me to see, you know, Schadenfreude is not a good trait for to have, but it's nice to see someone else dealing with it finally, you know? Yeah, totally. And we're used to it. And that's why, like, looking ahead to the Olympics in Beijing, like, we tend to do, like, we did well in Korea and we're, we're, we always do well in these remote yeah. Uh, destination in, um, Olympics and world championships because you take the central Europeans, the Scandinavians, you take them out of their comfort zone, you send them over to China or Japan, it kind of levels the playing field. Um, yeah. And I think that's why we're going to be really successful in the years to come. 
Yeah. Cool. I agree. So here's one for you. Um, we all know it's difficult to stay healthy in the winter when you're racing and training and you're always kind of on the limit, but it's even more difficult on the World Cup, I think, with all the personal contact you have. There's even more races. There's even more travel. There are some external influences that make it more difficult. Um, and it seems to me that on average, you've been extremely healthy over the years. Maybe later in your career, you get sick now and then a little more than you had earlier. But um, I'm curious if you have some stay healthy type trips for traveling and racing for us all. Um, one of the things we've learned over the years, especially as we've, we've done more HRV monitoring. And so for those who don't know that is that stands for heart rate variability. And that means we're basically measuring what our hearts beats, what our heartbeats do throughout the entire day, even while we're sleeping. Um, and through a lot of this HRV data, what we've discovered um, is really how much stress has a negative impact on the body. And in particular, the immune system. That's something like a lot of data is coming out now about even just being stressed about work, about family, about a relationship, anything like that can totally flip your immune system upside down. Um, and so I think it's easier when you're a younger kid, you have less responsibility. Um, obviously, as a 25-year-old kid on the World Cup, you have less responsibility as a 35-year-old on the World Cup. And I've experienced, you know, both sides of that. Um, but as a younger person, like just going with the flow and being less stressed, like taking life stresses, as many life stresses as you can out of, the, out of your daily life will keep you healthier for sure. Um, and so that's kind of the number one thing. And then obviously like taking care of yourself as far as like nutritionally, um, we would travel with nutritionists sometimes to some of the major events, Olympics, world championships, stuff like that. Um, but I think like the mental game of that the mental side of just being relaxed and kind of embracing the process has what is what has kept me healthy over the years and not getting like too wound up about like, Oh my God, we're, at the Olympics, like we got to perform, um, that kind of stuff, but like kind of enjoying the process um, and kind of, you know, taking it less serious actually has a huge impact on keeping you healthy through that process. So there are a lot of type A personalities in our sport. And a lot of those type A personalities are very reactionary to things that they're having a hard time controlling, you know, like their atmosphere and so on. And, and it seems to me a lot of them, adopt more of a kind of a fight or flight reaction kind of that adrenaline throughout the day and i i think that um impedes your immune system because of the stress that it brings is that what you're talking about to avoid like for me that would be a red flag if i'm if i'm feeling those emotions and that kind of adrenaline and anger or or that like that uh, railing against the world kind of a uh, an idea then you're on your way to getting sick totally yeah, I mean, that's one of the first things you learn as a professional athlete. It's kind of like sports psych 101 is don't stress about the things you can't control. And that's like what a type A type person would stress about are like, you know, the weather, what's happening today? Um, are my skis going to be fast enough? Uh, did we test the right skis? Um, oh my God, did I eat the right thing for breakfast? Did I do this? Did I do that? Um, is so-and-so going to be here at this race? Oh, I heard that, you know, I heard that Yohog is going to be at this race. If so she beat me, all this kind of stuff. And as an athlete, as you, you, you learn to turn out the, off that noise, basically, the healthier you will be for sure. And you will not get sick nearly as often for sure. Cool. Yeah. I, I, um, I try to think about, 
I'm a little bit like that naturally, but I've, I've, I've overcome that by being aware of my tendency to be like that. And I kind of think of not only going with the flow, but also having problems flow through me. You know, like if there's something that I can't control or someone irritated me or, or some, something didn't work out, I try to have it flow through me instead of bottling it up and pushing it down inside me, a flow through me so that it's gone. And, and I don't think about it and, and I'm just going on flowing, you know? That's what I kind of think about to reduce that fight or flight reaction. Totally. Yeah, that's the mental side of it for sure. I mean, if, and if you combine that type of mentality with just taking care of a few like more common sense health things like staying hydrated, fueling is huge. Like if you're an athlete that's trying to like cut weight, for example, you will get sick like that. Boom. Nine times out of 10. Uh, a lot of studies now show like, especially if you're traveling a lot and racing a lot, the higher you can keep your carbohydrate stores, especially like the healthier you will be. So like eating a lot of carbs, snacking a lot throughout the day, staying hydrated and then, and then having that kind of like more relaxed, easy breezy, let it flow through you kind of mentality. Um, that's the best defense you have against sickness basically on the World Cup. So this isn't one of the things that I meant to ask you, but just to, it's the obvious. It seems like obvious to any experienced Nordic ski racer, but keto is flying around as the thing and this and that. Maybe for a sedentary person, I think keto is great. But for a cross-country skier, an endurance athlete who's trying to train at a high level and race at a high level, that's absurdity craziness, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm not a nutritionist, so take what I say with a grain of salt, but I would never recommend a low-carb diet to a cross-country skier ever. You know, you, you, carbohydrates are kind of the fuel, the rocket fuel you need as an athlete. And not only do they keep your immune system functioning well, but it will improve the quality of your interval sessions, your races, all that kind of stuff. So yeah, I think the keto, the low carb diet got popular because of ultra running and probably like long distance cycling. But you think about crossing your skiing, the longest race we do on the world cup, a 50 K is maybe just over two hours long in a race. That's just over two hours long. You are burning primarily carbohydrate the entire time. So um, the idea that you would benefit from a low carb diet or keto diet as a crossing your skier is, is, kind of bogus in my opinion the only athletes that might benefit from that type of diet would be somebody who competes in like a 17 plus hour event like an ultra runner or something like that yeah. but the rest of us normal skiers we train and race on glycogen mm -hmm. the, the stored carbohydrate in our muscles and you're not going to replace glycogen if you don't eat carbohydrates especially shortly after a workout that's that's the part of the being professional and nutritional aspects of staying healthy that's really important in fact is eating carbohydrate and some protein directly after a workout in the so-called glycogen window. Mm -hmm. And also your immune system uses that. So if, you're, if your blood sugar is low and your glycogen stores are depleted, your chance of getting sick are far higher. Yeah, okay. absolutely. Yeah, you nailed it. And that's, that's one of the things you learn as a pro on the World Cup is like, you always have the snacks in your bag, you're always prepared. Um, and it's funny working with athletes now who are in their 20s, mid twenties, like the group that I coach, they're kind of, I think of them as transitional athletes from like college athletes to professional athletes. It's so funny that like so much of being successful as a professional athlete is like common sense kind of stuff that you learn along the way. Like be prepared with food, have an extra water bottle. These are all things that seem so like trivial at first, but like they keep you in the game and they keep you successful. And so I hope I teach young athletes that yeah, to think of those little steps, to hit your glycogen window every single day so you, you don't get sick. And it's like, 
these are, it's so funny that like your success as a skier really comes down to some of these pretty minute details that you need to kind of ingrain and learn in your twenties for sure. Talk about um, improving through making incremental gains. There's, mm -hmm. there's, there are a ton of things on that list that you can do with what we would call, let's say being professional. When you add them all up, those are some significant gains. That has, that's the difference between staying healthy and or chronically sick. And it's also the difference between being able to handle a training volume that's quite high without getting overtraining symptoms or something worse and not, right? It's, it's yeah. very important. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Okay. I got four personal, more personal questions that I think people will find interesting for you. All right. First, I've always marveled at your abilities, as I said before. And I do believe that you could have been a world-leading professional athlete in a number of sports, probably such as skateboarding, snowboarding, surfing, triathlon, obstacle course racing, and many others. If you hadn't focused on Nordic skiing and had to pick a sport to focus on, what might it have been? Huh. That's a good one. Um, well, I think people might find this surprising, but um, I'm really not a competitive person. And I think I was never that athlete that was like maybe a little bit in my early years in my twenties, I was never that athlete that was like on the start line, just wanted to like rip people's heads off. <laughs> I was a little like, I liked pushing myself. I liked going fast and I liked taking chances. Like I was always that skier that wasn't afraid to like push themselves hard. Like I'll push myself to like throw up no problem. Or I'll, I'll take that chance to try to pass like four people on an inside corner on a sprint just cause I'm, kind of crazy and I want to take that chance but I was never the most competitive athlete I'm not the kind of person that um like if you're playing a board game with me I'm not going to get super angry if I lose like I don't care it's a board game I'm not that kind of competitive or if, like if I'm playing basketball with like my teammates I don't need to be like dunking over people and winning a basketball game I'm just really not competitive um so looking back I probably would have been a more successful I think I had the talent to win more world cups for example but wasn't just not, I wasn't that cutthroat competitive bottom line. And so I think because of that, I tend to gravitate more towards sports that are less competitive. So, I mean, um, like skateboarding to me has always been a really fun pastime. And I love sports like that, that are so technical, like a sport like skateboarding, you have to practice how many times you have to practice a certain trick before you nail it. That's a really cool aspect of a sport like skateboarding and surfing for that matter is it's like, it's very much a flow sport where it, you, the way you look and the way you perform a trick is very important. And so I think that kind of aspect, why that's kind of one of the reasons why I've always been into ski technique is because it's like how you look um, doing something is really holds a lot of clout. And the same is true with skateboarding and surfing. So I, I think I tended to gravitate more towards sports like that. I get that. But you also have got an incredible spatial and body awareness that literally nobody else has in Nordic sports, which would make those sports um, a better fit for you than, than someone else who wasn't very competitive inherently. Yeah, no, and that's, that's why I like sports like, yes, skateboarding and surfing, I love it. It's like, kind of like, um, you know, a blank canvas and you have like, you're like an artist and you can perform what you want on this wave or on the skate park or on this, in the skate park. And like, uh, it's very much geared towards like what it looks like. And it's like, a, you know, more of that, type of flowy sport but at the same time I love putting my head down and hammering so I think that's why I, I could never get too far away from endurance sports because um you know we're kind of like endorphin junkies you know yeah. push ourselves <laughs> so here's something I wanted to ask you for a long time 
when I look at you and your many strengths and abilities, and, and the strengths and abilities of most successful cross-country ski sprinters that are also quite good at, you know, what we would call middle distance in 15K, mm -hmm. and I look at competitions such as Survival the Fittest or Steve Austin's Broken Skull Challenge, which I absolutely love, and some other event that combines strength with endurance, such as obstacle racing, I always think, man, I wish Andy Newell, Torn Coos, Chris Cook, Cindy Hamilton would go on the show and just trash everybody. And I know you would, but you never did. Did you ever consider doing one of those types of shows or events? Um, and why not? Uh, I would say, um, yes, I did consider actually um, for a while. I, and I did compete in a few um, of those obstacle course races. Um, like I qualified to go to the Tough Mudder World Championships, although I never went. <laughs> like interferes in like November or something. I was going to be on the World Cup. Um, but um, you, I don't know if you guys know this, but so like the company Kraft that I've worked with for a long time, Kraft Clothing, um, they used to sponsor the ski team. They're really heavily involved in the Spartan races these days. Um, and so I actually had a recent conversation with Kraft um, and they were talking about how it'd be cool to get more Nordic skiers involved in those adventure obstacle course races and all kinds of stuff. So I think it'd be fun to do. I would love it. I'm not sure I would train to do it professionally. Um, cause like I said, I don't think my passion is there for that type of racing. My passions with skiing. I want to, I, you know, fought forever, put my head down and trained to see if I could become the fastest skier in the world for a long time. Um, now my passion is working with other people to see if they can become the fastest skiers in the world. And I don't think I would have that same passion for a sport like adventure obstacle course racing, although it would be super fun to do. I'd love to do one of the races. I think it'd be fun to do like as a team, you know, have everyone go out and do it. <laughs> cool. All right. What is something about you that might surprise people if they were to find out? Um, also, do you still have the cabin that you built yourself in Vermont? <laughs> Let's see. Um, I do have the cabin. Uh, it's in Western Vermont. And yeah, I bought that piece of land in 2010 and spent basically four years renovating and building off of this hunting shack that was on this cabin or on the land and it turned into a, the Vermont cabin that it is now. Um, don't spend as much time there as I should. Um, but one thing that people will be surprised, um, I don't know, I really, I mean, thinking of the cabin, I really enjoy um, like manual labor a lot of times. And so like, it's, I think it goes back to that kind of patience that you need to train for a sport like cross-country skiing that you get into at a young age. You know you're going to have to put in a lot of hours of work before you start to reap the benefits from what you're putting into it. And I think the same can be said for things like building a cabin. You know, it's like every little board, you know, doesn't mean a lot that day when you're, you're working on like a little cabinet here or, you know, planting some floorboards here or throwing up some stain or some paint, but like you do that for three years and then you have a beautiful cabin. And that's kind of the way skiing is too. It's like, I really love that, um, that slow burn, that kind of like put your head to the grindstone and work every day. And that before you know it, like you wake up a few years later and you have this like beautiful thing, whether it's like fitness that you've gained or strength or a cabin that you've built in the woods. It's kind of like, um, yeah, a pretty special, um, yeah, process, I think, I guess. And so, um, that might be something that people don't know is that I really, I, I'll, I'll go over to a friend's house who's like building a house or doing some painting and I'll just hop right in and start like, I love just doing manual labor. 
I just, I just enjoy it. <laughs> it seems like you're a craftsman. Yeah, I guess, yeah, craftsman, that's who you could call it. <laughs> cool. Yeah. I think, last question, do you have a mantra or philosophy that can be summed up in a few words? Hmm. Um, I think now my, for sure, my mantra is uh, be a student of the sport. And that's something I try to think about every day. That's something that I, that guys like Sperry and Chris Grover taught me. Um, and it's going to be hopefully words that I, that I take with me through this next phase of my career, which will be, you know, coaching other athletes and hopefully producing, helping produce some of the best cross country skiers that the world's ever seen. I think the U S is capable of that, but, um, I think in order to do that, we do have to take with us a mantra, like be a student of the sport, which for me means, um, you know, I don't do everything right. I didn't do everything right as an athlete, which I think makes me a good coach. I made plenty of mistakes as an athlete. And so I can easily turn that into teachable moments for the athletes that I coach now. Um, I think a lot of ways I will be a better coach than I ever was an athlete because of that, because of the mistakes I've made along the way. Um, and I think now understanding too, that I, even if you are a successful coach or, 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 um, you know, are seeing good results with your athletes that are that with the athletes that you coach, it doesn't mean you're doing everything right. You know, you always have to change your approach, always need to stay current in your approach and keep learning and, and understand that there's no right way to do something. Um, and so that's what being a student of the sport means to me, I guess. Cool. And you've, you've I mean, from my perspective, you've exuded that the professionalism and being a student of the sport and even more, maybe being a lifelong learner, which I have a great passion for you exude that. I mean, you're an analytical, you're methodical, you think everything through and it's obvious. You're also very innovative. <clears throat> I've seen that in your videos and I've seen that in with my own eyes in real life. Like you're always, you don't necessarily, you study what other people do, but you also uh, try to figure out a better way, you know, build a better mousetrap as they say, when it comes to technique, training methods, everything I'm sure when it comes to building houses too. So uh, that's, that's a trait of yours that I really admire. Oh, thanks. That's funny. Yeah. I'm, it's funny you, you say that because I do really like to, yeah, approach scheme like it's a problem. You know, you, it, it's, a, it's a puzzle that needs to be solved. And just because something works well this way, there's always like, I'm always trying to find like that one tweak that you could make, you know, to make something run more efficiently or, or work better or have a better response as an athlete um, to the training or something like that. So it is a, it's a, I don't know, a sense of never really being satisfied with, it's actually what drives Erica and my wife crazy. The fact that I'm never satisfied, <laughs> can't be satisfied with like, I, well, we might do a workout and I'll be like, yeah, but it could have been better if we did this or like, it could have done this, it could have done that. Um, and that drives some people crazy, but it's also, yeah, it's something that <laughs> for better or worse is something that I, I have inside of me is that, that, that kind of drive to always try to make something just a little bit better. Um, in your approach, basically. So the word status quo would always have negative connotations for you. <laughs> I guess so. Yeah, yeah, I like that, that's great. Okay, well, I'm, I'm sure that this uh, interview and conversation will be very popular and I hope that coaches even use it for their own education and to maybe light some fires of imagination and um, maybe finding some direction in some of these topics that we've discussed for some of their athletes. And if nothing else, I'm sure many master skiers will also feed off it. I'm certainly, um, I've got a lot to chew on. Um, and I really appreciate you having taken the time 
um, to share your talent and experience and wisdom with me and with the American Skiing Public. Well, thank you, Ian. I, I really uh, appreciate you as well. I mean, you have been part of the U.S. Nordic scene, you know, basically as far back as, as I can remember, and you've been a big part of this evolution and, and some of the success we've had. And it's because of folks like you and brands like Toko that help support athletes like me along the way. It's, you know, we can't thank you enough. It's not like we're not becoming millionaires while we do this. It's a passion sport and you have that passion and, and you've really helped this sport come a long way um, by, by your involvement. So thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I'm all in just like you are. <laughs> awesome. Cool. Okay. Well, thanks. And uh, I'll look forward to seeing you around hopefully shortly, I guess in uh, two weeks or so. You're yeah, coming down, right? Yeah. Thanks, Ian. Thank you.